Hello and welcome to the Osborne Clark Energy Innovation Podcast Series. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Redrup of the North Sea Transition Authority. We're going to be hearing from Matt about the North Sea Transition Authority, the new role he has there and the new team, and we're going to focus particularly on carbon capture and storage or CCUS. The overall theme is going to be trying to draw out some points of difference. I want to hear from Matt in his experience as a regulator who is interacting with industry in the UK on the development of CCUS rather than focusing on some of the things that are particularly current in legal commentary. I want to hear something a bit different. And I am going to also try and link this in to the wider upstream offshore environment in the context of the transition to net zero across offshore wind, the off-tow regime, hydrogen, and to a small degree, upstream oil and gas. So my name is Matt Louie. I am a corporate partner at Osborne Clark, and I specialize in energy work, particularly renewable energy, M&A, and primary development projects. Matt, do you want to introduce yourself briefly? Hi, Matt. Um, Matt Redrop. I'm the business development manager in the NSTA's newly established UK carbon transportation and storage team. I provide the commercial input into all of the aspects of the work that the NSTA does from a CCS perspective and previously held commercial roles within the regulator in the upstream space. So, I mean, it's probably worth saying at this moment in time, the NSTA was formerly known as the Oil and Gas Authority. That name change to the North Sea Transition Authority reflects where society is today and that direction of travel for our industry going forward. Fantastic. Thanks, Mac. And we're looking forward to getting your perspective. We thought it would be useful just to set the scene with carbon capture in the UK. We want to make this as accessible as possible. So we are going to go into some more points of detail, but I thought it would be worth me just spending a minute or two explaining what CCS is and where we are with it in the UK. So where we are, in late 2021, the government allocated two large projects in heavy industrial areas as priority to get up and running first. And those are the Hynet project in Liverpool Bay, which is being run mainly by ENI or ENI, and a project called the East Coast Cluster, which links up Eastside and the Humber region. And look, these aren't the only projects coming forward. The government has recognised there have been some false starts with CCUS in the past and that to get these up and running in what is a large infrastructure development and a nascent novel technology, it needs to work hand in glove with industry, otherwise they won't necessarily be successful. And so it is doing that, but the plan is actually quite ambitious to hit final investment decision as soon as possible and ideally to have them up and running by mid to late decade. There are other projects in the wings, which are all very viable. They tend to be in industrial areas, particularly in Scotland. And there are some projects in Aberdeenshire, which we think will follow very quickly. What CCS is? So there's probably two ways of looking at this. There are, who are the emitters effectively in these industrial areas who will be applying carbon capture technology to filter out the carbon dioxide from their emissions? And there are a range of these. There are gas power stations. Now, gas is important as a transition fuel for the production of electricity, particularly given how intermittent wind and solar energy is. And the gas power stations will be applying CCS to help decarbonise what they are doing. Then there are industrials and chemical companies, often who require 
basically a fairly dirty feedstock to create some chemical or industrial process. And it's quite hard to substitute that for something environmentally friendly. But by stripping out carbon dioxide from the flue gases after production, that can help them decarbonize. And then we have some what we call blue hydrogen plants. So hydrogen using natural gas through methane steam reforming. And that, if it applies CCS, becomes blue hydrogen, which again is environmentally friendly. Now, those are the emitters. The other side of it is a huge infrastructure development, which is really the transportation and storage network. And what will happen is all of these entities will capture the carbon dioxide and they will put it into a series of onshore pipelines, which will then run to the beach effectively. Then it will run offshore and then offshore it will be stored in depleted gas reservoirs. And the reason why the upstream oil and gas industries are heavily involved is that they are the ones who have owned and or operated these assets historically. So they are best placed to get involved and they are also pumping billions of capex into these projects. I think that's probably more than enough from me. Matt, I, I wanted to ask you about the North Sea Transition Authority. So it's an open question to you. There's a new team there. You've got a slightly new role. You're focusing more on CCS. Could you tell us about that, please? Yes, so as I mentioned, the NSTA changed its name to the NSTA um, last year with that focus on where the industry is now going. It became very apparent during the course of last year that more and more work that the team was focusing on was becoming in the CCS space rather than the hydrocarbon space. So as a result of that, it was determined that we needed to have a new dedicated team that would focus on CCS and managing those projects. So from the 1st of February this year, the new UK carbon transportation and storage team was set up. That kind of merges into two changes that's happened within the NSTA. As a result of that, you know, we've always been responsible for issuing CCS or CS licenses to appraise storage sites and CS permits to store carbon. What we've now done is we've created a new directorate that's called New Ventures and I sit within the operations directorate. So what there is between the, the between the two is the New Ventures directorate is responsible for the licensing rounds. So we currently have a carbon storage licensing round live at the moment with results due in the near future um, and they will be responsible for future licensing rounds. They're responsible for license awards and then that early license stewardship. It's also fair to say they will work closely with the team I'm in, in the operations directorate. The operations directorate, we will look at sites after site characterization of the license. So that's when they will transition to us. We're then responsible for stewarding that license across the full life cycle. Um, where there's a bit of confusion, and this is where we kind of look at where you know the projects are today is they haven't reached site characterization however our team is responsible for them so it isn't just about those two priority clusters that you mentioned earlier yes the first licenses have been issued to the priority clusters the high note and the east coast however there's also acorn in scotland and then harbors viking pro um, project in england that's really interesting I, I guess the point here is that you are refocusing and there's a new remit for you guys and you're going to be part of the transition to net zero by 2050 and you are also working I know and speaking to other components of the offshore upstream industry effectively which doesn't just cover oil and gas I know that you've been interacting with the offshore wind industry to a degree and also we're going to talk about some of the CCS developments outside of the two priority clusters as we get a bit later on in this podcast. So that's really interesting. Okay, 
I thought it might be helpful to talk a little bit around project risk, and this is where we can start to draw out some of the things that people are not talking about, certainly in legal circles. So in legal circles, there's a couple of things that people are focusing on, and I'll try not to get too technical, but the first one is basically the economic returns for these projects. So for the transportation and storage network, which are the pipelines and the, the offshore reservoir, there's going to be what's called a regulated asset base or RAB return model, which is used in the UK for natural monopolies, utilities, airports, for example. And then there is also going to be for the emitters, what's called a contract for difference, which is effectively a form of revenue subsidy. And it's going to be based on the forms of contract for difference, which have been used in the round for renewable energy um, generation auction process by the government. Now that's all fine. And to a degree, these models have been used in the UK, but not for this new technology and not in a way where the two different revenue underpin models to make these projects bankable will interact and it's going to be quite complicated. And a lot of what Bayes have been doing is working together and trying to get industry comfortable with the regulatory models. The other thing which people talk about quite a lot is around the risk inherent in developing first of a kind new infrastructure projects. So particularly around, I mean, what happens, for example, if a, a gas power station spends an awful lot of money retrofitting carbon capture and then the transportation network isn't ready? Or what happens if the demand is too low for the system? Or what happens if there are outages? And ultimately, there could be stranded assets if it doesn't all get up and running. And so a lot of the work being done in the regulatory papers is around mitigating risk. But that is all well and good. Matt, you have been interplaying with industry and speaking to the people involved in the developments of the priority clusters and otherwise. What are you seeing that people aren't talking about at the moment? I think one of the most interesting points from my perspective is how these projects are going to be powered. So previously in the NSTA, we've done a lot of work looking at offshore electrification for oil and gas assets. And, you know, they are quite power hungry, but there's potential then for CCS projects to require even more power. So if we look at that from break that down into what that could be, that's around the requirement for heating of the gas and the compression. So that is focused on the storage component of it. So one example is if you're going to be heating gas in dense phase, which is when, you know, it's going to be more palatable because it means that you can transport more CO2 in a system. You could be looking up to 10 megawatts of power required per megaton of CO2 per annum, which is an awful lot of um, power that's going to be needed, especially with some of these projects looking at up to 10 megatons per annum, that's 100 megawatts of power. So if we put that into context, when we look at the Southern North Sea, when we've been looking at decarbonising oil and gas installations, the largest power user at the moment is 19 megawatts. So if you've got these power, if you've got these assets for CCS looking at up to 100 megawatts per project, that quickly becomes an awful lot of power. It's probably worth saying that not all of these projects are going to be the same. Some will have varying, but that is maybe your worst case scenario. So the question is, where is that power going to be coming from? And of course, you know, offshore installations in the oil and gas world are meant to be reduced in their power emissions at this time, which is a specific focus that we're looking at. And the North Sea Transition Authority is stewarding oil and gas operators around their commitment to meeting the North Sea Transition deal. That's interesting. And I was going to say, I mean, one of the classic roles of the Oil and Gas Authority in its previous guise was trying to get offshore installations to use less gas and diesel to actually fire their generation capability. So 
seems like there's going to be even more of a need for power, particularly offshore. And it's interesting in a, a wider context. So looking at offshore wind, for example, when the government is currently looking, and it's a long-term strategy, but looking if the current regime where each offshore wind array has its own single point-to-point -point connection called an off-tow, bringing the electricity onshore, if that's actually effective, efficient and robust, and it might be more sensible to have what they're calling a multi-purpose interconnector, basically an offshore ring main linking up multiple wind farms. You could see in the future that this could work. It could have interconnectors going to other countries in northwestern Europe. It could also connect up other offshore installations, including oil and gas, including CCS. You would have to have battery storage involved as well. Look, that is a long time into the future, but it all points to early collaboration between industries to help us reach net zero. Matt, what else are you seeing that people aren't talking about so much? I think another big one is around storage and leakage insurance. So this is around CO2 leakage from an offshore underground store. Ultimately, the insurance industry needs to see projects moving forward and feel that there's a global industry and not just something UK centric. Because if you if they would take the view that you've got the two priority clusters, as we've mentioned, and then the other two licenses that we have out there active at the moment, and then maybe what's awarded in the round, there isn't that kind of conveyor belt of opportunity to really get into the work that's needed to create these complicated products. So one of the things that they need to be looking at is actually what is that global industry? And if we're able to you know, test the waters here in the UK by developing products, we've then got something that we can then market across the global market. And as I said, these are going to be complicated um, products. I think what's been helpful is Bayes has recently just published a report looking at the actual risk of leakage from carbon storage. You know, the report says that it's very low, less than 0.01% for both reservoirs and aquifers. However, there hasn't been a major incident with very few CCS projects to really see what that leakage risk could be like in reality. So I think one of the things that the insurance sector and the investor sector is really conscious of is even if a leak occurs, how severe is that? So this is one of the things that industry is needing to grapple with, and um, you know, particularly when it comes to pricing these insurance products. So again, early engagement between both the insurance industry and the CCS industry is going to be key. And then there's also that concern that even if a product is made available, if there is a claim on that, however unlikely, are your premiums going to go up or even worse, does it make projects more difficult to deliver and ultimately does the insurance become unavailable? So the NSTA has been working closely with the insurance sector to date around what they might be able to do and trying to help develop that understanding of leakage risk. That's very interesting, actually. So when I was reading the earlier iterations of the regulatory papers coming out of Bayes or what is now the Energy Security Net Zero Authority, it was a question in my mind as to whether de facto, if the insurance industry couldn't come in and provide the relevant underwritten product, that actually the government would be the insurer of last resort. But I think it's clear reading the newer papers and hearing that you've been engaging with industry that actually the government does not want that and it wants to push as much risk as possible onto the private sector. 
Now, it should be possible. We've got a world leading insurance industry in the UK and they're very sophisticated. So if we can get on board with them, if they can understand the risks, and as you say, if this can look like a global industry and something worth them getting their teeth into, I think it should be possible to get those products to market in a way that doesn't ruin the economics of the projects. But it will require some pretty early engagement to do that. So it's good to hear that it's happening. I wanted to talk a little bit now, and it might seem a bit fluffy, but around the mindset of these projects. And the reason why we've chosen this topic is, Matt, you were saying to me that your role has changed slightly and you are engaging with different participants across industry. So historically, the Oil and Gas Authority, you would have engaged mainly with the upstream industry, whereas now, these projects, CCS, they're effectively huge infrastructure developments. And so you'll be dealing with different players and ultimately they may end up owned by different outfits, infrastructure funds and others. And so they look different and they feel different. So, I mean, just to start with, how is that panning out and what are you seeing? I think the main thing to look at is collaboration. You know, we've mentioned it before. I think collaboration is going to be key to the success of CCS. CTCS in the um, in the UK. So, you know, when you look at it, upstream sector is probably used to higher higher IRRs, whereas ultimately the returns from a CCS transportation and storage play are going to be less volatile. Um, so therefore, it's going to be more potentially higher single digits. That's going to create a different mindset in an approach to a project. So in order to achieve what industry needs to do from the outset, there needs to be that collaboration because you can't have maybe the project overruns and the cost overruns that we've seen before in the traditional upstream sector because you haven't got that potential fat within the IRR to, to warrant that. So I think, you know, project delivery is going to be absolute key going forward. And I think, you know, what is also becoming apparent is you know, collaboration between those kind of private industries, but also because of the regulatory space, there's an awful lot of regulators now that have a role to play in CCS. So there's multi-party negotiations going on between the upstream companies, but also them with Bayes, NSTA, Ofgem and others. So again, collaboration across the regulatory space is going to be key to see these projects successfully delivered. That's interesting as well. So talking about the returns, I mean, certainly on the transportation and storage side for the regulated asset base return model, certainly for the first couple of projects, the priority clusters, there's going to be what they call a reopener after two or three years where effectively the government will come in and say, look, have these projects cost more legitimately to get them off the ground than they were going to, or at least we modeled them as doing so. And if so, should we be paying a bit more to account for that? But as time goes on and as other projects start to develop, there will be much less of a scope to do that. So delivery, project management is all going to be critical. I mean, it's the same thing we saw actually interestingly in 2021 when the Crown Estate in England had run its seabed auction process basically for the next generation of offshore wind arrays. And in that process, the auction prices went up much higher than they were before. And these are auctioning off parcels of offshore land effectively, the seabed rights. What, what happened was the oil and gas companies came in and the likes of Total and BP were in consortia and they were successful. But given the price they're going to have to pay in auction option fees to the Crown Estate, and these are ongoing as well, 
they are going to have to get these projects up and running very quickly. And if they don't, they're not going to achieve a high single digit IRR. And so project management, working with the supply chain, getting the onshore planning component, which again is something new for CCS, which they didn't see before. Certainly the oil and gas industry wouldn't have seen before. This is all absolutely critical. And it all points to working together and your role, Matt, and helping facilitate some of this to get these projects up and running. Next, Matt, what else have we seen in collaboration spheres? I think it's that different approach that's going to need to happen with that investment lender community. Secondly, looking at the lending and investor uh, landscape. So one of the things that's going to be different in the CCS projects is you need to be engaging your financial advisors early. You need to get them in from the early stages because essentially the project is going to be funded from a different perspective. If we were to look at the classic upstream industry, lending is based on oil reserves, so the reverse reserve based lending model. Lenders often come in at a fairly late stage in project development. The market is mature, therefore parties can be relaxed and have the confidence to work to that sort of timetable of delivery. Whereas what we're seeing here is more project finance It's going to be used. Lenders need to take a view on the project and the risk structure from the outset, because ultimately you as an operator might have two options available. You might go down one option rather than the other. But then when you start to engage with financial advisors, they might have been able to influence that choice at that at that set point in time where you made your options and one could be more bankable than the other. So I think that's going to be one of the things that the industry needs to get its mind changed in is how early they engage that investor community. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's not rocket science from our perspective in that these are huge infrastructure developments that will be project financed. And what we would do in a project like that is come in at the outset and say, look, this is normal. This is the normal allocation of risk, the way the contractual matrices should work between the sponsors and everyone else for the development and moving as much risk away from the development special purpose vehicle as possible. And that is what the lender would want to see. And if it doesn't work like that, then you might find it's not bankable and they won't touch it or they want something to be reworked before they will come in. And so it's just same point, getting involved at the outset effectively. Okay. I think, you, I think you just touched on something interesting there, Matt, around the special purpose vehicle. That is one of those areas where us as a regulator are having to get more comfortable because there's a wider point on how these projects are going to be structured. And from our perspective now, you know, we're used to engage with an operator in an incorporated joint venture in an oil and gas context. However, to manage these CCS projects, the economic regulator wants to see a incorporated JV that's going to be a delegated board that sits within a special purpose vehicle. Therefore, the interface is different for us as a regulator, and we need to start to understand what that means for our approach to regulation. Yeah, and I, that's almost a whole different training topic in itself. I mean, like the point Matt is making is that in the upstream oil and gas world, they're generally used to dealing with an unincorporated, effectively a collaboration arrangement, and that will be a joint operating or joint development agreement. There'll be one party as lead operator and they'll basically be doing everything. Everyone else is in the background and what they will want to do in the background is take the hydrocarbons off, off take a beach effectively. So as regulator, you'd be dealing with one party normally unless things go very wrong. But for these infrastructure projects, there won't be that. There'll be an incorporated special purpose vehicle. Everyone will be involved in that as shareholders, and it looks a bit different. And things around governance, around liability allocation, around exit rights, around further funding, it's all a bit different. And 
particularly when you have people coming from a different world and getting involved in an infrastructure project. It can take a bit of time to get their heads around it and to get up to speed. And so it'll look a bit different from your perspective as well. So it's interesting to see how that's panning out. And again, it's a slightly different interface pointing to collaboration at an early stage. I think that's probably enough on mindset. The last main thing I wanted to talk about is actually the Bacton project, because I saw some very interesting reports coming out from the North Sea Transition Authority a few months ago. And Matt and I were talking about this. So we spoke at the beginning around the demand case for CCS and around gas power and industrials. This one is slightly different. So Bacton is in North Norfolk and it has easy access to the Thames Estuary and to London. And the case here is that you can use gas from the Southern North Sea particularly to create hydrogen. It'll be blue hydrogen to start with if it uses gas. And that in theory can be blended into the natural gas network. And obviously there's a huge demand, particularly for residential commercial heating for methane gas around Southeast England. And you can use hydrogen blended up to around 20% with the methane gas network without having to relay all the pipes, without having to get everyone to get a new boiler involved. And that will go actually quite a long way to help decarbonise the use of gas. Now, Matt, what's going on with that? What's the next step effectively? So from the NSTA perspective, we published a high level feasibility study in December 2022. So as you said, that kind of focused on using existing future Southern North Sea gas to create blue hydrogen for, with CCS and feeding that into existing national transmission system, which carries the methane around the country and looked at where studies were at around what that potential blend could be. And I think there's studies that are ongoing at the moment that show that a 20% blend in the national transmission system, you know, the end user doesn't notice it. So us in the, when we're cooking of an evening or putting our boilers on to heat our water or our homes, you don't notice that 20% blend. So there is possibility there around that blend of hydrogen into the national transmission system. Over longer term, you know, as demand increases, we would expect this to move to green hydrogen, which comes from offshore wind rather than blue. But you need blue in the first instance to add as that bridging option, because at this moment in time, the technology for green hydrogen isn't as developed as it could be in comparison to blue hydrogen. And also it's a lot more costly. So you need to bring those costs down. And one way to do that is to enable the market to take hydrogen, and that would be blue hydrogen. So I think one of the, the bits that we're we're working at is working with industry to see how they can become more involved in this. So we've spoken to many players across across industry, um, been involved with banks as well, looking at the bankability. And, you know, as I said, we published a report at the end of last year that is a lot more detailed looking into the entire use case, both demand, supply, infrastructure reuse, what the opportunity is for the supply chain technology, which you can find on our website. That is really interesting. I mean, we were talking around the cost of green hydrogen before, and the point was levelized cost of green hydrogen is more than blue. Although as the technology advances and actually as gas prices stay high, the differential is likely to narrow significantly. I mean, there are obviously challenges with doing this. Blending is great in theory. It will need legislative changes. The government's going to need to change the underpinning gas legislation to allow it. I think it's planning to look at that in the mid-2020s, so it could happen, but there are challenges around doing it. What do you see the next steps as that being, Matt? 
So ultimately, the NSTA wanted to act as a catalyst for Baxter we have. We've now handed this work over to industry to take it forward to either for a form a consortium or consortiums to realise the potential for this. One of those one of those enablers will be the next license awards around CCS in the Southern North Sea, because you can see Batten having a very key role to play from a CCS perspective going forward as well. That's fantastic. Look, I think that's probably all we have time for today, so we can wrap up. It's been a pleasure to have you here, Matt. I think what we might do, if we can borrow you again, is have a maybe a look forward and look back session in a year or so where we see how the market's developed and where we've got to, particularly with our two priority projects. The other thing we can do at that point, I'm conscious that at the moment you guys have been involved in an auction process for the latest round of CCS licenses. Now, we're not really talking about that today because it's almost contemporaneous with this podcast, but we will obviously, the dust will have settled at that point. You may be involved in a future auction round and we can talk about that in more detail if you'd like to come in again. So thanks very much for your time and it's been a pleasure. Thanks, Matt. Look forward to it.